Tonight I'd like to talk about compassion. And I want to talk about this tonight um, mostly because we've still been doing some compassion practice these last uh, few weeks. And this week we're going to change to another uh, Brahma Bihara. We're going to change to uh, mudita or joy. So I wanted to speak about compassion while a number of you were still involved in the compassion practice. It's a way of bringing it out more fully. But also because one way to actually talk about our practice is to talk about it as awakening to our compassionate heart. That what we are actually settling into, when the mind drops, sometimes I like to think of when the mind drops out of the head area and down into the heart, into more of a fullness of our being, we begin to touch our compassion. What is it? What is compassion? What is, I want to talk about true compassion, really looking at this quality of the heart when the heart is really free. There's a beautiful Tibetan tanka in the hall at Spirit Rock where I teach sometimes in the community hall, in the lower hall. And it's very, very large tanka. It's... um, about the size of part of that wall over there. And I love that it's there. It's right near the teaching podium. And this tanka is a uh, painting of Avalokiteshwar, who is a bodhisattva of compassion. And the painting is Avalokiteshwar with a thousand arms. So when you look at the painting, there's this whole wide circle of arms all around him. And it looks like a a halo, so many arms. And what this means is each, each arm, in the middle of the forearm, and each hand, there is an eye. So it's out looking out like that. And what it depicts is this this archetype of being able to touch all the beings of the world, to see all, of the be- all beings of the world in this open stance, open heart, open mind, receiving all the suffering beings in the world. And it's really very powerful to see that in that, that openness and with all those arms and eyes for every being, not turning away from any suffering being. The male archetype is Avalokiteshwar, but the Kuan Yin is the feminine, the the, the goddess of compassion. And sometimes it's said that Kuan Yin hears all the cries in the world. She hears all the cries in the world. That open hearted quality of not turning away. This is really a beautiful metaphor for us as we relax and open to the way things are. Because true compassion is a natural expression of an awake mind. An awake mind and an open heart. It's one manifestation of this awake mind which we could say expresses itself as love or loving-kindness, metta. This expression of love that, in terms of compassion, is turned towards the suffering aspect of life. We turn the love towards that, this love that is open, this love that is able to be in contact with the way things are. The love is turned towards suffering, but also with true compassion, there's an impulse to want to relieve that suffering. In the contact comes the impulse or the, the wish, the, the desire to have that being be free of their pain, of their suffering. 
when we feel true compassion, this is balanced with equanimity. And it's this equanimity which allows a stillness in the mind, a a non-reactiveness, which then gives us the capacity to sustain the contact with the painful element. To sustain the contact without being repelled, without withdrawing, or without acting out and pushing away. This equanimity that allows us to remain present even in the face of this difficulty. Compassion can often be experienced as a relaxed openness, a softness, or a tenderness in the heart. Oftentimes we speak of the experience of compassion as a quivering in the heart. And I like that. We we say that often because that, that sense of the quivering in the heart, it's so... It's so real, it's so true when we're in contact with that. We can actually feel the, the kind of vibration within, our, within the center of our heart as we open to compassion. It's really a very beautiful state of mind. One of our teachers, Sogni Rinpoche, talks about three aspects at the root of compassion that are all present together. He says these three aspects are sadness, a sense of responsibility, and joy. And I think it's so interesting to reflect on these because you wouldn't think that true compassion would actually have either sadness or joy in it. It seems kind of incongruent to imagine that that can be the case. And also this sense of responsibility. So how do we understand this? We feel, Sokni says, that we feel the sadness because we realize that we can't end the suffering. In that knowing, in that recognition of the truth that no matter what I do, it's very unlikely that I'm going to be able to end the suffering. So compassion has that wisdom, that understanding in it. The responsibility that arises is that desire to reach forward. It's actually an energetic impulse to reach forward, to to support or to help, to relieve the pain, even though we know that it's unlikely that we can. And the joy, joy, how interesting there can be the joy and the sadness together. I think that the joy comes from the vitality that's present from being awake. The, vita- the, the joy and vitality that's there when we're in, the con- when in contact with things the way they are. A joy that arises in presence itself when we are fully engaged with what's true. That is a joyful experience to be here fully with what is. This is from um, an abbess at a Korean seminary for 300 nuns, Myung Song Sunim, who speaks about compassion as great compassion. It's said in Korea that when one speaks of compassion, they always speak of great compassion. And she speaks of a compassion that is engaged, not distant. Not when we're just sitting on a perch away from everything, kind of away from life and just feeling our heart full of compassion, but one where we're actually in touch with the way things are directly. She says, Great sadness means that when someone falls into a lot of suffering, we spend much energy to get them out of it. It also means that when sentient beings are sad, we are sad with them. When they cry, we also cry. Great love means that when sentient beings are happy, we are happy with them. Being sad together, being happy together, this is great compassion. Great love means that we give great happiness. Great sadness means that we deliver people from their suffering. And I really love that because it really brings in the 
the emotional heart, you know, where we're actually feeling touched, we're feeling moved. It's not a, a detached or a cut off or a distant kind of compassion, but we can be sad, we can cry, we can be engaged. The heart moves in many, many different ways. I think it was mentioned that with sadness, it's easy to think that it shouldn't be here. Somehow that, that feeling of, of, of sorrow or sadness that is supposed to go when we become more awake, when we become more free. But I, f- I think that sadness is actually a kind of moisturizer on the heart. It gives some juiciness to our practice. It keeps us awake keeps us attentive, it keeps us engaged. Yet without understanding, really understanding the way things are with wisdom, that things are changing, that things are selfless, that things are ultimately unsatisfying, we can get lost in our sorrow and grief. We can get caught in our attachments to how we want things to be. There can be a caring, but without that deeper understanding, we remain caught in ordinary feelings, ordinary daily feelings. And this is really not true compassion, but an expression of some attachment. And when this isn't seen, we can be thrown into these states of sorrow and grief, self-pity, even self-righteousness about what's happening. And we can get paralyzed, we can get frozen here, and unable to act in any kind of wise and responsive way. And these states, because they're so strong, they can also cover up deeper feelings of helplessness, more vulnerable feelings of our helplessness, which can be hard to touch. Yet this changes Sometimes we're caught in these stronger states, and sometimes we feel more freed up. It's not like we get necessarily get stuck in one or the other. We can see that there are lots of changing mind states. Sometimes we can be more open and allowing. Other times our caring and concern can turn into holding on. This is very natural for this to happen. I was very touched by a story that Sharon Salzberg told once when she was teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock. And it just so happened that, that during that retreat, uh, their friend, Joseph and Sharon's friend, Ramdas, came to visit. And Ramdas, as many of you may have known, he some time ago had a heart attack that caused a great deal of paralysis in his body and some problems in his speech, and has been a very, very challenging, very difficult situation for him and, and his friends, his community. And so Ramdas came in his van uh, that's all geared up for him and his attendant, and they came and met uh, Joseph and Sharon. And um, Sharon tells the story that when Ramdas was getting to leave, getting ready to leave, And he was walking down the steps. They met in the council house, which you have to go up some steps and then come down some steps. And so when he was getting ready to leave and had to go down these steps, he seemed to be in so much pain as he was walking down these steps and really grimacing and making, um, you know, many, some moans and really having a hard time getting down. And finally he got down and then he got in his van and it seemed like such a lot of work and a lot of effort. And Sharon was just saying how her heart was just uh, so, so in so much pain watching Ramdas go through this uh, very difficult and challenging uh, 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 way that he had to be in himself. And so he got into his car, and Sharon went down and just said, "Oh, Ramdas, I'm just so sorry that you know. Are, are you okay?" And Ramdas looked at her, and said, "Yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay?" And in that moment, she really got how she had sort of imagined in a way that may not have been so accurate what was actually going on for him. And she was getting very kind of contracted in how she wanted things to be for him. But yet when she asked him, he was absolutely fine. It was just what 
the conditions that he was dealing with at that time. But there didn't seem to be a way that he was very caught in that. And I was so touched by that story. That also Sharon would tell that story. Just, Just such a good example on how we so much want things to be otherwise. But in this case, it wasn't even as she imagined it to be. And how often that can be true for us. We, we, we imagine when we see other people who are engaged in certain situations that things may be a certain way that they may not even be that way. And so, again, just kind of taking a little more time, reflecting, sitting with what's actually happening. Are things really the way I imagine them to be? This letting go, our compassion manifests as we let go of our self-interests and our attachments to our desired outcomes. And we can see how our atta- we get so attached to the way we want things to be. We've spoken about this so much, this want, want things to be in control the way we want them to be. Carol was talking about this me, me, me. You know, this, what does it mean to actually let go of this me? What about me? You know, Carol does that, you know. And yet, as we loosen our grasping, we loosen this fixation around the sense of ourself, we begin to have more space. We feel more relaxed, a little more space, more open to be able to consider others, to be with others, to to see others as they are, and also to hold ourselves with more kindness, with more care, as we begin to let go. Sokni Rinpoche says, after the concept of self dissolves, the expression of that realization is compassion. Really pointing there, to what's there as we let go. That awake energy, that enlightened energy of being is compassionate. And as we let go, we're, we're letting go of a narrow view of the world and ourself and people. And then as we open, we, become, we have a wider view. We have a wider perspective, a more open perspective to the way things are. Suzuki Roshi gave a teaching that I read once on Kuan Yin, and it, maybe it's a kind of koan, a koan spiritual question. Very simple. He just says, Kuan Yin has a thousand hands. If we focus only on one hand, we lose 999 hands. What does this mean? I think it's really worth reflecting on. For me, it means that if I focus only on one hand, it's the same thing as wanting things to be a certain way. You know, just want that one hand and all that that represents. I want something to be this way or that way, to see this, to feel that, to try to force something on myself or someone else. And like putting myself in a box or someone else in a box, kind of squeezing, pushing, manipulating. And when I do that, I lose 999 other hands. It's like I lose all that possibility, all that's available in being able to respond with that open heart. I'm not saying that we have to always open to 999 possibilities or a thousand possibilities because this may be too much for us. We may not be able to open in that way. And this can feel actually quite overwhelming for us if we do try to open in this way. But if we do feel that overwhelm, if we do open in a way that so much is coming in, we feel overwhelmed, all we need to do, and which is what's so beautiful about this practice, is all we have to do is just come back to being here right now. And even with that overwhelm, see if we can't open our heart to that. That is the compassionate response. 
that is the expression of the thousand arms, right towards that overwhelm. We don't have to be any particular way. Many of you know that I spent uh, many years in India. I was going to Bodh Gaya every year for about 15 winters, and I was teaching there uh, uh, where the Buddha was enlightened near the Bodhi tree, the Thai temple. And I went the first time 20 years ago, and I really think this is where my heart first opened, where I really started to come in contact with life in all of its diversity and its variety. And if you've been to India or you know about India, it can be a real assault to the senses and to all of our fixations and holdings and attachments. And it's very, very, very difficult. It's very difficult for me. There's so much that is impinging with colors and smells and the heat and the spicy food, and it's all kind of on one extreme or the other. You know, it's just such a wide variety of extremes. And in Bodh Gaya, which is really one of the poorest states, Bihar, it's in Bihar, which is one of the poorest states in India, there's so much poverty and beggars, beggar children and sickness and uh, lots of noise, and we would sit at the Thai temple, and uh, one year there was a carnival happening next door with lots of music and you know, lots of noise, and at uh, times there were loudspeakers going and all-night music because they don't have many uh, TVs or radio, so they would just blast a loudspeaker for everybody to hear, and so the Hindi uh, movie music would be going for hours and hours, and you know, it's just that there seemed like there, there isn't any way to get away from the impingement. There's just so much to, to deal with. And the first year that I was teaching there, I was asked to do some questions and answers in the hall, and people wrote down the questions on some pieces of paper. And I f- naively thought that I could probably handle many of the questions that were coming in. But one question came in, that really threw me. Of course, I didn't let anybody know that it threw me. But the question was, how do you deal with all this suffering? How do you deal? This is my first visit to India. And the truth was, I had no idea. I had no idea. I couldn't say that at the time for some reason, but I wish I had because that would have been the honest answer. I gave some kind of answer, and then later when Christopher who I was teaching with, said, said something about how I did. He said, you did really well with the questions, but that one question about suffering, you need, you need a little work on that one. You're, you're going to need to be in India a little bit longer to be able to answer that one. And it was really hard to allow myself not to know because I really had the sense that I should be able to open to all the suffering. You know, the sense of, you know, that I, it's it's possible to do that. And again, very naively and innocently thinking that that could be the case. But I, but I realized this 20 years ago that I had no idea of the size of the cloth. No idea what I was actually even imagining that I could do. Now I really understand that compassion can only open to the extent that I am free of the fixation of self. It's only into that extent, because the fixation of self is actually what blocks the expression of that awakened energy as love, as compassion. I just cannot express the caring nature as fully if I'm caught and all of my desires and attachments and hopes and wishes. and It's not true compassion. When we talk about letting go of the fixation of self, this points us to emptiness, to seeing the empty nature of self. Sokni Rinpoche again says, True compassion arises 
after the realization of emptiness. True compassion arises after the realization of emptiness. Another one of our dear colleagues, monk, friends, Ajahn Amaro, he says that emptiness is the fairy dust in compassion. Very playfully, emptiness is the fairy dust in compassion, which really opens up the heart to true compassion. So what do we mean? How do we understand emptiness here? One doorway for the revelation of emptiness is seeing into the impermanent nature of things, as Joseph talked so beautifully about the other night. Seeing things that come into existence, stay for a while, a moment, a little while, and then disintegrate. This is what reveals to us a nature that is not fixed, that everything is in transition, Everything is empty of any substantiality. And we say that empty of self-existence cannot exist by itself. Everything coming and going, coming and going. And it's this empty nature, which is the openness that allows for things to be born, unfold, and pass away. There has to be an empty, open space in order for this creativity to manifest. Or things would be locked, compacted, fixed, as we imagine the self to be. And yet when we look at the self, and we can see here how it's changing, moment to moment to moment to moment. Sometimes we see it more directly in a momentary way. Sometimes we see it through the day as our moods change, our emotions change, events change, light changes, dark. Weather, cold, heat. Feel all these changes. See all these changes. Things move because they are free. Things are already free. This is from Dilgal Kinsey Rinpoche. From the heart treasure of the enlightened ones. When sunlight falls on a crystal, lights of all colors of the rainbow appear yet they have no substance that you can grasp. Likewise, all thoughts in their infinite variety, devotion, compassion, harmfulness, desire, are utterly without substance. There is no thought that is something other than emptiness. If you recognize the empty nature of thoughts at the very moment they arise, they will dissolve. Attachment and hatred will never be able to disturb the mind. No negative actions will be accumulated and no suffering will follow. There may be moments that you experience when the sense of self is not so strong. Different times through the day, or even times where there's a sense that it even fades away. Or moments when there is no suffering, you're not experiencing the impingement, the contraction of the mind and the body. It's the sense that the self is not imposing itself so much on experience. There's a sense of more freedom, fluidity, flowing. The mind is more quiet minding its own business. These are these tastes of momentary freedom. And these moments are very important to recognize because these moments really allow us to feel a deep connection with things. When the mind is quiet, when the heart is still, we can really be in touch with the subtlety of experience, this even sometimes this moment-to-moment transient changing experience. When we're not engaged in the usual distraction and identification, the, the desire and aversion and confusion in the mind, something starts to shift. And we might feel this sense of spaciousness, of calm, this feeling of metta, loving-kindness, of true compassion. 
just for the way things are. And we, we know this experience. Many people have had this experience. And these are so important because they really reveal to us what's possible, our, our capacity as human beings. Sometimes it may be when you're walking outside or you're in the woods or at sunset or in the early mornings, and the mind just opens, the heart opens. It might be when you're sitting in here, just these moments that you feel a sense that even when you touch the pain, it's okay. The heart feels so big. And in some ways, you may even sense that it's not even your pain any longer, but some way that it's the pain of the world, it's the pain of being human in this body, in this world. You can almost have a sense of some impersonal nature to it. And yet at other times, we feel the constriction of the small self, the birth of me, 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 you know? When when we're self-aware, when we're aware of this, we can feel the forces of the greed, the hatred, the confusion in the mind at play. And then it's easy to judge ourselves, to reject ourselves, and not be very compassionate. And in these moments, we can think we have so far to go, you know, the whole kind of uh, past, present, future, all of time comes into play. It's going to be forever before I'm free, before my heart opens. You know, this kind of solidified view that we can start to have about the way things are, rather than even remembering that like an hour ago, we were very quiet and still, and our heart was open and soft and moist. So this view, how this view can come in and kind of hijack the way things actually are. This is a this from uh, Ch- Chang Su, and it was this was read early in my um, practice days, and I've always loved this. I want to read it to you. It's called the Empty Boat. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides collides with his own skiff. Even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and he would not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. Since he judges no one, no one judges him. Such is the free one. His boat is empty. Yet all the great teachers say that emptiness itself is not enough. That we must also practice compassion. And one time, the, I hear the Dalai Lama was asked if, if we had a choice to put our efforts into deepening our practice of wisdom or practicing compassion, which one would he advise us to practice? And without thinking for very long at all, he said, compassion. Much more important to practice compassion. From there, the wisdom will awaken. Because emptiness without compassion can actually feel brittle or dry. We can feel disconnected from the way things are. Since everything is empty, one can hold on to a view that nothing exists or that nothing ever happened. We have a friend who um, really loved to play with this view of nothing ever happened and you know, nothing really exists. You know, it's fun to play with that sometimes and just sort of, you know, get into that sort of dreamlike, insubstantial nature of things. And then he adopted a, a little girl, a, a, a young, quite a young girl. And, and then it became a bit of a little bit of a joke. We kept, uh, said, so nothing ever happened? Nothing ever happened? Because, you know, of course, when you have a little baby... Is nothing happening? You know, the whole, everything breaks loose. Everything starts to explode. So, you know, it just, it kind of flies in the face of that, kind of that belief. 
Because every, even though everything is empty, beings do exist. Of course beings exist. There, and there is suffering. There's outer suffering. There's inner suffering. And these conditions do not go away. Maybe things become more transparent or more insubstantial, but there is still pain. There's still the first noble truth that there is suffering in this world. No matter what, these conditions do not go away. The true compassion that arises from the revelation of emptiness means that we have unlimited compassion for the infinity of beings in this world. That's what the revelation of emptiness points to, this, this capacity to meet the world as it is. One teacher said that understanding the ultimate knowledge of the nature of things together with great compassion is the only way to truly eradicate suffering. Both the deep understanding of the nature of things and great compassion. This is the way we will eradicate the suffering. And why is this? Why do we need both? Because then we aren't reacting to things out of our own egoic needs and desires and attachments. It comes back to the fixation of me, what I want, what I think is supposed to happen. As we let go and allow our mind and our heart to open, our heart can be touched by the conditions of this world. Not only the painful ones, but also the pleasant ones, the beautiful ones. And as we allow ourselves to be touched in this way, we may begin to quietly wonder. These questions start to come into our mind. Why? Why? Why are things the way they are? Why do beings suffer so? We, 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 it doesn't make any sense. We, we can't understand it. One time when I w- was in India, I had the opportunity of uh, sitting with this young Indian man, well, he was probably about 17, boy, and he was the son of the Chaiwala who uh, was outside of our uh, monastery each time we were teaching there over the years, and his name is Sanjay, and he was there from the time he was a little boy, and as the years went on, he grew up, and because a number of Westerners came around and uh, to the monastery and also had chai at the chai uh, shop, little tiny, uh, very, very tiny little shop, um, he was able to start to learn English. It was really quite phenomenal that, he, that there was a way we could start to engage with him. And this one day, after some years, I, was, I wanted to sit with him and ask him a few questions about his life. I just asked him things like, you know, what do you eat for breakfast? You know, how's your breakfast? And, you know, he said something about, you know, well, he has a chapati, you know, just a little wheat flour bread and some tea, chai. And if they're lucky, they'll get some milk for the tea. That's the breakfast. And what about your lunch? Well, lunch is um, rice. And maybe if we're lucky, we'll get some curd, some yogurt and some vegetables, local vegetables that are around. And then dinner was a tea, again, with a chapati. And we're just hearing about the simplicity of his life and just how uh, the realities of his life, actually, living in a, a poor village behind, just in the, behind, in the, in the, um, uh, behind the town, and I, w- I remember when I was sitting with him just feeling this, this sense of, why Sanjay and not me? How come, how come I'm not living 
the same life. And I felt like I was so privileged. I, like I, I felt so wealthy. I felt like I had so much in my life. And at the time, I really didn't have very much at all. I was mostly just traveling with a backpack and didn't have a home and was living very simply. But it was like, why? Why? And it's like you can't answer those kinds of questions, and yet the heart wants to know. It goes very deep in the wonderings and the in the reflection of how is it that things can be the way they are? And we don't know. And yet we can let our hearts be touched in the wondering. We can let our heart heart be touched in the in the not knowing. And something awakens for us. And in some ways, we're not quite as afraid of the pain in the world. We can come more fully into our humanity and our shared humanity, that we share this together. We're not separate. We're not isolated beings, that everything we do affects everyone else. We start to feel this more deeply. And as much as we may want to resist and, and push that which is so difficult away, we see more and more that this is really the doorway to the wellspring of our love, the wellspring of our connection to others, to ourself, to life. This is from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. As we open to the truth, Compassion means to suffer with, come with passion, with passion. To be compassionate means we are capable of suffering. By being with suffering, one awakens. Joanna Macy, a wonderful teacher, scholar, says that this is a tantric flip. She calls it the tantric flip. That when we turn towards suffering, the heart opens. Compassion opens. we, We don't want to. We don't want to turn towards the pain, but yet that is the doorway to the awakening. It's so counterintuitive. We want to resist it. We want to push it away. But it is through that doorway that the heart awakens. This tantric flip So we're encouraged to actually use the difficulties in our life, in our practice, to actually enhance our practice. And this is a heroic kind of practice, or we might call it heroic compassion, because we usually view the things in our life as obstacles or inconveniences to our practice when things aren't going the way we want them to go. And we can even disregard our practice. We can say, I don't want to practice right now. Now I want to wait for times to be better. I want to feel better before I meditate or before I actually uh, get more still or more quiet. You know, things are just too tough right now. And we can just postpone. We just keep postponing. Um, This is what the Dalai Lama says. He says, if you can't practice when you are suffering because of what it does to your mind, and you can't practice when you are happy because of attachment to your happiness, then there will be never a time when you can practice at all. When can we practice if we're not actually seizing this moment the way it is? Or we may find that we just don't want to deal with something. We just kind of want to deny or pretend that it isn't even going on. Just kind of skim over it completely, cover over it. This is a story that I I really love a lot when I first heard this. It's 
one of our friends tells this story. My friend's father was a young child driving with his own father in a car on December 7, 1941. A sudden, a sudden announcement came over the car radio. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. Immediately, the father leaned over and said urgently to his son, Don't tell your mother. When my friend heard this story from his father, he thought, right, maybe he hoped she wouldn't notice any of World War II. That's a bit of an extreme, but, you know, it's like that. Don't don't walk into that room, you know. Just stay where you are. Things could get too difficult. But we take this on as a practice. It's one way to practice. And we could say this, we could hold it like this. I will not hold anything as my enemy. I will not hold anything as my enemy. It's very powerful when you reflect on it. Or I will have an attitude of openness to all of life, even to that which is unpleasant. It's kind of a inclining the mind, turning the mind in this way towards this inclusiveness of our experience. This is courageous. It's courageous practice. I think this is very courageous practice that we're doing. It takes tremendous courage to sit in the openness to the way things are. A deep willingness to face what's true. This is from Hafiz. Don't surrender your loneliness, your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. It really points to that letting the heart be touched in the tenderness, in the quivering. Such a beautiful place within our beings. Someone asked the Dalai Lama if he gets angry at the Chinese. And he said, almost not. Isn't that wonderful? Almost not. And I think really what's being said there is that there are enemies, but we learn not to hold them as enemies. Because if we do... It corrupts our own heart. It keeps us divided. It poisons us if we hold on to that. How can we release it? This is our practice. Practicing compassion means that we practice acceptance. Practicing compassion means we practice equanimity, the mind that is free of reacting. We say, I accept this because it's happening. I may not like it, but it's happening. As Byron Katie, another wonderful teacher, says, reality is the highest order. We may want it to be very, very different, but what are we going to do? So that question that I was asked in the hall 20 years ago, how do I deal with all this suffering? How would I answer it today? When I reflect on it, I think one of the things that's very, very, very apparent to me is I see how many ideals and expectations and desires and wants and all that I had then. And I see now that really what is being asked of me is just to start where I am, just to be here. (laughs) 
just to be honest and truthful with just this right now. What, what is my capacity right now? Because I see that really what this practice is teaching us is to, to how to expand our capacity for openness, how to expand and deepen our wisdom, how to open our heart. And my sense more and more and more is that that is there are infinite possibilities for us as human beings, infinite capacities for what's possible for our heart and our mind. I think it was even Carol once when I was on a three-month course who said in one of her Dharma talks, she said, it's best to take a long view, have a long-range view, because so much is possible for us we can't even begin to know. I'll end with this uh, poem. Kind of a, I think they're called Awakening Poems from Choki Nima Rinpoche, which, who is actually Sokni Rinpoche's brother, another Tibetan lama. He says, When watching the magical display of this world, as it seems to be, Spontaneously, an overwhelming despair and pity well up in me. When watching its nature of innate simplicity, as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing, both disappear and cannot be found. Now, what to do? Let's sit for just a minute. May I be a bridge and a ship for those who want to cross the water. May I be an island for those who seek one and a lamp for those desiring light. May I be a bed for all who wish to rest and a hand for those who need a help. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.